few years ago, I was in downtown Saskatoon and I saw a billboard that was unlike any I had ever seen before. The Lone Ranger's sidekick, Tonto, was pictured with a simple caption, Tonto, pray for you. I don't know what it was in reference to, but it touched a nerve that left me asking questions about our national relationship to our First Nations people. Every nation has to wrestle with its own history of race relations. We all have to wrestle with it individually. Let's go back to 1967. My grandparents were visiting our family in the small town of Southampton, Ontario. It was a school day and I was walking from the front door of our house and down the street two or three blocks to my kindergarten class. My grandfather saw that I was carrying something and so he asked, Kevin, why do you have that big stick in your hand? I replied all nonchalantly, it's in case I meet any Indians on my way to school. Well, I don't remember saying that. I don't remember that particular incident. But what I do remember is hearing my grandfather retell me that story over and over again through my life. And every time he would tell the story, he would have a, a big laugh. Perhaps it was watching cowboy movies, other TV shows that inspired my young mind, like many of yours, to play cops and robbers, cowboys and Indians, and boys against the girls when we were hanging out together. And that's child play, but I think a really important question to ask is whether five-year-olds can be racist. At that age, I was already aware of the Saugeen Indian Reserve nearby, and I was in the habit of listening to adults in conversation. Remembering that story now makes me a little sad to think that as a kindergarten boy, I would be afraid of a people group and feeling that I needed to defend myself. We fear what we are least familiar with. Nelson Mandela said, no one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love, for love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. It's very likely that we all have discriminated and prejudged others based on ethnicity, social standing, lifestyle, or religion. To have a true understanding of the mission of God, we need to understand God's love for all people of the world. If we're going to be about the mission of God, we must also be cleansed of our prejudice, whatever shape it takes. On today's episode, we're going to start a two-part conversation with a party of five. Joining me, to, me today is Chris Cobbler, Nellie Latchman, Kellen Brooks, and Joshua Bowers. We're all involved in ministry in the border cities of Windsor and Detroit. This was our small way to talk about race relations and the difference that we are called to make. 
Hearts change when we really listen to somebody else's story. So I hope that's what you do today. I hope you hear the stories of people that I consider to be friends. This is a really exciting opportunity to have a conversation uh, with a couple people I know and a couple people I don't know. And uh, with all the things that are going on in the news right now uh, around race relations, uh, it's so important that, uh, that the Christ followers of this world come together, talk about these things and know how to respond. And uh, I wanna introduce uh, the co-host uh, for this discussion. Uh, I, if you don't know me, I'm Kevin Rogers, pastor at New Song Church in Windsor. And uh, we're a, a congregation uh, that has uh, a lot of focus on uh, around poverty issues in our city. And uh, of the um, lead team of uh, the pastoral team uh, that work with me at the church, uh, three are men, three are women, and uh, three are white, and, and three are various shades of brown. And uh, we get along uh, fairly well. Uh, well, very well, actually. And uh, so uh, I'm, I'm going to introduce uh, the co-host now, who is uh, Chris Cobb Cobbler, Pastor uh, Christopher W. Cobbler. I'm not sure what the W stands for. But, Willing worker. Uh, <laughs> Chris is yeah, the it's... pastor at one church in Windsor. And uh, I've had the, the honor, the privilege to um, be with uh, their congregation a couple times doing things and uh, we just have a great love and respect for each other so welcome Chris and uh, introduce yourself. Yeah thanks um, Kevin and my name is Chris Cobbler and the W stands for Wilberforce so that's Christopher Wilberforce Cobbler uh, so some some history there and some heritage there um, I am the, the senior pastor of One Church Windsor. Uh, we are a church that, that does focus on the marginalized. Um, that's, that's our heart. Uh, and we, we just believe in the missional impulse of the church, um, that we are trying to participate in what God's doing, uh, not trying to recreate it, just trying to see where God is active and uh, to join in with that. So um, excited to be here and excited. I love, I love conversation. I love discussion um, because I think that um, listening um, to others, you know, is, is a great way to learn and to, to grow in your compassion uh, for what's happening in our city. So uh, maybe I'll start with uh, uh, Pastor Josh from Detroit, and you can introduce yourself, and then Nellie, and then Kellen, uh, Pastor Kellen, maybe you can do the same. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. And Wilberforce is like the perfect name for our discussion tonight um that's awesome yeah you know the history there um so anyway i'm a, a pastor here in detroit at a church called cross and anchor church and um yeah we have been around we're we're actually a really young church uh we're new we started just over a year ago and uh our focus our, our vision is to see new life in detroit through jesus christ and uh we're just kind of in the middle of everything that you're seeing on the news and hearing and reading about lately and trying to be a voice for the gospel and for um, those that are marginalized as well. And I'm really glad to be included in the conversation. Thank you. 
Go ahead, Nellie. Thanks for, thanks for coming, Josh. Hi, I'm Nellie Latchman. Um, I am a Mission Canada worker, uh, especially in Windsor, to the University of Windsor and the students there. Um, just have a heart for post-secondary students and that whole lifetime journey that they're in. Um, so yeah, that's just my heart for them. I'm also the young adult pastor at New Song, so I'm one of those that works with Kevin. Uh, and yes, we do get along. <laughs> and also glad to be a part of the conversation today. Well, I'm Kellen Brooks, uh, senior pastor at Pentecostal Temple Church of God in Christ in Inkster, Michigan, uh, Metro Detroit area, and uh, friends with Chris and looking forward to uh, getting to know you all as well. And, and Josh, you know, buddy of mine, he's been trying to get us connected for quite a while now. And yeah. So, uh, yeah. 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 So this is perfect, man. And uh, looking forward to the conversation and dialogue tonight. That's great. So uh, I think Kevin, I'm on the on the first question here. So I'll uh, I'll ask away, and then uh, you guys can each jump in. Want to hear your thoughts? So don't be shy and just just respond openly. And uh, uh, it is on the record, <laughs> so there is that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the, the first question is: uh, I have seen a lot of statements such as "We are one race," uh, "There is uh, only the human race," uh, or "I don't see color." Um, I understand the intention behind it, but is this biblically sound? I, I guess I'll try and say something about that. Um, I would say that um, I, I think may, maybe the sentiment, you know, comes from a good place. But if you don't see color, then uh, in a sense, you're almost dissing what God has created because God intentionally created different races, different color, different culture. And if you're, you're colorblind when it comes to race, then you actually aren't seeing things the way that heaven does, because it's very clear in revelation. There's going to be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. It's not like we get to heaven and now we all have the same color skin. We all have the same culture. We all have the same background. It's like still in existence in heaven. So the diversity is actually what makes things beautiful. So, um, uh, that's just a, a real brief answer. I, I think others might have more to say along those lines. Yeah, similarly, I feel um, unseen when someone says that they don't see color. Uh, because when I look in the mirror, that's one of the first things that I see. Uh, when I look in the mirror, if someone says they don't see that about me, uh, that's something that I've had to come to love about myself. Uh, and it's taken a long time to love the shade that I am. Uh, so to say that someone doesn't see that in me or they look past that mm -hmm. is to say that um and of course a lot of the times they don't mean this but they're saying basically that um i i see you like me which is without and that's even more damaging to the experience that i've lived because it hasn't been without all of my life it's been with color wow yeah thanks for sharing that yeah the passage of scripture comes to mind Acts 17, 26, <clears throat> says God has from one blood made all nations. And so I think uh, that it's important to see our, the equality in our humanity, right? That we're, we're all human beings. We're all in the image of God. We're all of the same blood. Uh, somebody said last night, we're all 35th to 50th cousins, right? So uh, in that sense, we're one race, but, um, like, you know, both of you have said, you know, Nellie and Josh, uh, 
there are nuances and there's difference that makes us beautiful. And, and God, uh, he has given us that gift of culture and uh, that gift of ethnicity. And so, yeah, we, we shouldn't ignore that because there's something beautiful um, within that. And it lets people know that there's something in me that you need and there's something in you that I need. And our culture helps to bring that all together into a, a lovely mosaic. Yeah, you know, I would agree with that. I, I, I think um, I, someone just literally told me that, that, uh, you know, God doesn't see race, like that, that God doesn't see those things. And I always think of uh, James Cone, who's, who's one of my favorite authors, uh, who says that our theological perspectives arise from our social constructs. And, and race is a social construct. Uh, you know, this, right. this idea that that thought has no independence from our, our social existence. Um, so since race exists in the world, then our, our then it will, it's going to influence our theological perspectives. Um, and so when someone says to me that I don't see race, um, I think it's an indication that they, they, they clearly haven't spent a ton, a ton of time with people, um, that have been oppressed because of their skin color. Um, people Mm -hmm. that have, have, have gone through turmoil and struggle because of the color of their skin. Um, and so I think that, uh, we have to uh, take on the posture of, of listening uh, and take on the posture of compassion and empathy so that we're feeling what our brothers and sisters are going through as opposed to just trying to superimpose an ideological posture. Um, Kevin, what do you think? Yeah, um, it, it reminds me of uh, our uh, youngest uh, son, Levi, when he was about four years old. Um, I don't know if you know Ryan Richardson in Windsor, but uh, Ryan and uh, I were were quite close in in the early days when I was in Windsor. And uh, so Ryan was over at our house one time and uh, we we all laughed as this naive little four-year-old looks at Ryan and says, hey, you're brown. And I thought, wow, you know, the the uh, the sweetness of a child that doesn't uh, make the immediate assumptions of looking at somebody and pegging them by what they look like, and uh, you know I think there's some something of the kingdom in in that kind of approach where um, a person's um, descriptors are not the first thing that we think about. But like, like Jesus, the first thing that we encounter is, is the heart of a person. And, uh, and being able to see that first. And, uh, you know, um, we, last Sunday was uh, Pentecost Sunday. And uh, so um, Pentecostal churches and charismatic churches and, and non-charismatic churches uh, all over would have uh, been talking about the upper room. And uh, so for us as uh, Pentecostals, uh, thinking of the, the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles in the early 1900s, um, there was a profound uh, man, William Seymour, that uh, was uh, one of the principals in, in that Pentecostal revival. And uh, it was... Uh, uh, this amazing, uh, one of the, the marks of that outpouring of the Spirit was uh, they 
described it as that the color code was erased in the meetings, that uh, it didn't matter about a person's ethnicity as they came together to worship. Uh, they were all one in the spirit. And uh, unfortunately, in, in the history of the Pentecostal revival, that, that started to um, uh, go back to um, whites stuck with whites, blacks went with blacks. And, uh, and that's why we have Assemblies of God and Church of God in Christ, I think, for, for a lot of, and, and in, in Canada, the, the similar kind of things, you know, where uh, people get more comfortable with their own um, similar group. And um, so uh, what we're doing here today, this is, this is meaningful, but I think it also needs to be uh, a pattern for the Christian life that we always would have conversations with people outside of our own culture. I mean, the Great Commission is wrapped up in this idea that you start at Jerusalem, but you don't stay there. You get past Jerusalem where the Jews are to Samaria, where the Gentiles are, the uttermost parts of the earth, you know, there's, there's this sense of, uh, in, in the outpouring of the Spirit, where there's an empowerment to have these kinds of conversations and these kind of proclamations of how good Jesus is. Uh, I just want to maybe throw the question out. Have you had meaningful conversations about race uh, with those uh, outside your ethnic culture? And if, if so, how do we ask appropriate questions? How do we diffuse defensiveness? What causes in a conversation people to pull back and react rather than hear? I'll throw that in, in the ring. Who's, who's got some thoughts on that? Well, I'll jump in with both feet. Uh, I actually just had one of those conversations tonight. And so uh, Zoom fatigue is real. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, that, those conversations are important. I think um, for me, I've been privileged to be in spaces where my relationships are almost forced with people who don't look like me, you know, whether it's a conference I go to or the seminary that I went to. Um, those that I had conversation with tonight were from seminary. And so uh, I'm thankful for those experiences and circles that um, I've been able to enter into to have those conversations. And, um, and, and it's always been on my heart too to force myself into certain spaces for the sake of cross-cultural uh, engagement. Um, one thing that I found beneficial in terms of what I can do uh, to facilitate that is to come to those conversations with uh, truckloads of humility and grace. Mm -hmm. um, you know, grace in the sense that people aren't going to say the right things or know how to articulate the right stuff. And so we may say something that shouldn't be said, you know, we may use a slur and don't even know it <laughs> or a stereotype and it just kind of blows over our head. But I think if we come to the table with grace, um, that allows us to have a safe space to make mistakes 
Um, and, and so that the conversation, you know, we're not walking on eggshells. I think if we're going to have meaningful conversations, we need to have a little thicker skin, kind of be like the duck, let it roll off and, and just extend that level of grace and also humility, um, you know, and, and understanding that uh, just because we haven't seen it doesn't mean it's not true. doesn't mean that it's not real. And so uh, we need to come to the table and say, you know what, even if I haven't seen that, I believe your story and I'm going to try to see it from that angle. So uh, humility and grace are, are major when it comes to those uh, conversations. That's really good. I, I would, I would agree with that. You know, um, so for us as a church, um, we didn't really like set out to start a diverse church. Like th there's people who that's their goal when they start their church. They're like, we want it to be diverse. And that's kind of like the bullseye for us. We um, like, we just wanted to start a church and um, we kind of had, I guess, like, you know, we were younger in our, in our style or our approach or whatever. Um, but God has blessed us with a diverse church. And I think that what has made that happen has just been um, authenticity and like not trying to manufacture something that's not real, you know, like, Oh, well, you know, we're going to like, uh, you know, make it seem like we care about this or that or whatever. I think like, um, and I'm not an expert on this. I'm like, I'm like new to church leadership, you know, like not leadership, but, but leading a church. I'm new to a lot of these things and, and I'm like stumbling my way through and making mistakes, you know, but I think like when people really glimpse your heart and, and they can only do that if they're in close proximity to you. Right. Right. And so like you have to do life with people that are not like you and you have to, yeah. like our church started around a dinner table and, and we do dinner parties every week and during COVID we've done them online. But, um, but like, I think that was the strength and that was really what led to diversity um, especially in those early days was like people just sitting around a dinner table and doing life together. And then you, through that, you have an ability now to have a conversation where, you know, you know, a person, you know, their heart. And now even if they make a mistake or they say something wrong, or like, you're like, I know that, you know, I know that they care about me. I know that like they love Jesus, you know, and, and you have like a little bit more grace. So, um, yeah, I think doing life together and being around people who are different than you is, is so important. Nelly, um, you grew up uh, in Brampton. In fact, uh, you're calling in from Brampton. You're uh, up, up for a home visit right now. But uh, uh, you grew up in a church that probably had 40 or 50 uh, ethnicities, nationalities represented. And, um, you know, uh, I, I think... Uh, I think there's, is there much of a difference between a Canadian uh, perspective on um, ethnicity and an American perspective? Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know how far down the rabbit hole we can authoritatively go, but I, I, at least we can observe what we've seen. Yeah, so being that... Um Brampton is in the middle of the GTA, which is mm -hmm. one of the most diverse places in the world. Um, it's very easy to have a multicultural church because 
people are just here. Um, and being that it was a very big church, it was easy for more people to come. Um, and also where more people are, you find more people like yourself. So there was a whole bunch of like smaller, I don't know, not to call them clicks, but you find people that are just like you. Um, something that we did was embracing that like difference, not to say that it was perfect. Um, because we were totally one of those churches that had like the once a year potluck where like everyone from the different cultures brings in something and then everyone goes around tasting different things from around the world, call it taste of the nations. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was like the embracing of culture. Right. Um, because otherwise it was unspoken because how else would all these people from all over the world be in one room together? Right. Um, so there was, there was good to that. Yes. Um, but I remember there was this one Sunday, uh, that our pastor got up on stage and he was, I don't exactly remember what he was talking about because when I was in church as a kid, I really tried to be in the nursery to hide away from being in service and just to go to Sunday school and eat goldfish crackers and stuff. Um, but I remember I was like 12 years old maybe. Um, and our pastor got up on stage and he was talking about something that had to do with a racial issue. Um, and he broke down on stage. He was crying. Um, and he sat down and he's like sat down on the stairs and just said like to my black brothers and sisters, I'm so sorry for the way that people of my color have treated you. Uh, and I remember like my, some like church dads, basically men that I had grown up seeing in the church being super involved. He, like, he was breaking down crying on the stairs and they went up to him and surrounded him. And that was like a really powerful Sunday morning moment, but also powerful for our church body um, to hear and to see our pastor say like, I am with you and I apologize. I don't know what I can do better. But at the same time, knowing that he was ready and available to have those kinds of conversations um, and to come to hear that like from the stage uh, that was like, that was really big. I can't say that everyone has done that, um, but it was really powerful. I felt seen by my senior pastor. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah. You know, I would, I would say, um, and I would agree with, with, with what you guys are saying. Um, I don't think you can, can learn without participation. Um, like, like knowledge is less propositional and I, and I think it's more relational. Um, like part of this, the story with William Seymour, uh, before the Azusa Street Revival, uh, is the truth is he was locked out. Um, he, he, he had to learn from the window, like, like uh, his, his color was not allowed in the room. And that's because people didn't believe that he had anything to contribute to the conversation. Um, and so I think that for, for many of us, the purpose of conversation or the purpose of us, of us asking a question is to actually impose an ideology Right. So we, we want to ask questions because we want to superimpose our biases onto somebody. So our, our questions a lot of times are loaded with intentionality. Our questions are weaponized. Um, and, and a lot of times when we're listening, uh, we're just listening as a way of projecting. So like we, we only attach meaning or, or value to things that affirm our biases. So I think that to start, our conversations are very confrontational um, because we're only listening um, as a, as a means to convert someone to our posture. Um, but I think that what's important is allowing somebody to appear on their own and on their own terms. 
So I think that like hospitality, coming to the table, empathy, compassion, all of those kind of spiritual disciplines of, of, of learning are, are actually ways of knowing uh, because we can't, we can't learn anything without participating in someone's story. So I, I would agree that, that being relational, um, sitting at a table with somebody, sitting on a couch with somebody, not with the intent of converting them to your belief systems and just with the intent of saying, I want to listen, right? Compassion, like, like suffer with, I just want to know, I just want to learn. I'm going to change my posture. Um, so, and last thing I think I would say is it, it doesn't just matter what you look at, um, but it matters from the perspective that you look at it, you know? So it's not just about looking at something, looking at a race and objectifying it, because a lot of times us, the, the, the autonomous subject, feel like we have the ability to objectify any situation. But the truth is we can't objectify anything or we can't judge anything or learn about it unless we're with, unless we're with them. So, man, we got to take on the posture of learner. We got to sit with and we got to, we got to close our mouths. I tell our congregation all the time, close your mouth. Like, just, just be quiet. Bible says study to be quiet. I think that there's something powerful about that. Definitely takes a lot of humbling um, and just being willing to, to be humble in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'll ask the next question. Um, What is our stance on civil disobedience? given that all authority is ordained by God? I'll, I'll start uh, maybe on that one. Um, so I think with the pandemic restrictions, that's a, a good test case for how Christians respond to authority. Um, you know, certainly uh, there are many um, uh, regulations around our all of our behavior in right around the world right now and it it, uh, it really uh, causes you to to look and say well what's what's going on what how serious is this you know there's all kinds of um, you know conspiracy theories emerging and all kinds of opinions and 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 you know the it's, it's good to look into these things, but it, it kind of comes back to how do we respond to authority? And uh, scripture says to submit yourselves to authority. It also says, Jesus said, you know, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, give to God what belongs to God. Um, what I've observed is that there are people who complete in society at large who uh, are pretty much intent on disregarding any regulation that's given to them. Um, and then uh, there are people who are uh, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, just fearfully obedient to restrictions and wanting to go beyond the restrictions. You know, so uh, in I guarantee that in every one of our churches, there's a range of people that are, um, you know, uh, being Pharisees about the law. And there are also some who are picking corn on the Sabbath, you know. So um, I think that, you know, what, what I'm thinking about is I have a little more empathy now for parts of the church that are oppressed and being persecuted around the world. And, and please don't tell me that Canadian or American churches are being persecuted. 
we're not, we don't know what persecution is. To, to lose our, our jobs, to be imprisoned, to be tortured, uh, the, the, the level of things that go on uh, in, under persecution. But what you see happen throughout history is that when the church is persecuted, uh, there are people who may have been very black and white about things, suddenly discover the world of gray. And um, it, if it becomes illegal to have church, the church goes underground. And, you know, so does that mean that, uh, you know, what, 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 what do you do with that? It, it really comes down to this, this conflict of uh, who, who is the supreme authority that we answer to? And uh, we would say, well, God is our supreme authority. We answer to him. Uh, when, when Paul gives instruction about, in Romans, uh, about submitting to those who have authority over you, uh, they exist to punish evildoers. Um, he was talking about the Romans who uh, crucified people and fed um, people to the lions and did all kinds of barbarous things. And he says, submit to authority. So, um, yeah, this is, this is not an easy question. And, and I don't think, and I, and I think that it's a question that you really can't answer honestly until you're really, really tested by it. I, I think um, uh, with the pandemic restrictions, uh, and I know that our cities are a little bit different um, because of uh, the fact that we're in, in different countries, but with in regards to civil disobedience, you know, I, I, I agree. Like the only real room scripturally for civil disobedience is when we're explicitly told to disobey scripture uh, or go against what God has said. And I told our church this weekend, I said, you know, people got all excited because president Trump a couple of weeks ago said church is essential. And so churches were like, okay, awesome. Like we're going to open up. And then our governor here in Michigan is, one of the more probably strict governors across the country in terms of stay at home orders and that kind of thing. And um, I think it's funny cause like, you know, you got people on the left who feel a certain way, people on the right who feel a certain way. But like the truth is like no governor or president can close or open the church. Like Jesus Christ established the church. And yes, we do exist underneath the leadership of our countries. But as far as the church operating, the church doing what it's called to do, um, that doesn't have to ever stop. And, and like you just said, uh, Kevin, with different countries who are actually persecuted, the church continues to operate even then, just goes underground. So I think with what's going on in our countries right now, this, I, I just really feel it's actually an opportunity. Um, I don't think it's a restriction. I mean, like, I understand we're sad. We want to be together. And there are things that we've had to give up. But at the same time, I really feel like God's using this to permeate the, the world with the gospel. Um, and I don't know what you guys have seen in your churches. I know with ours, like, the reach is just insane. And um, there's just such a great opportunity right now. So I, I understand, like, some people feel called to fight that civil battle um, and more power to them. I just feel like, I'm going to lean into this moment and thank God that he's given us this technology um, 
And I, I think that we're going to be stronger on the other side of this. Good. Yeah. You know, I would say, um, I think that this, this, this question is, is kind of loaded with Western privilege, um, to, to some degree. Um, you know, uh, we live in a country where, um, civil obedience, uh, it, it can, can interact with our faith. Um, when the truth is there are a lot of countries right now where Christianity, by the way, is thriving and Christianity is growing, right? So, so the Western world, North America is no longer the center or the, the is no longer the gravitational pull of Christianity, yeah. right? So in North America, Christianity is on the decline steadily. So those are just facts. Um, in parts of Africa and in India and Asia, uh, Christianity is, is, is thriving incredibly. Look at the under, underground church in China, as Kevin referenced. Um, so the first thing I would say, like, like you said, Josh, you know, Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church. And he has been, and he'll continue doing it. Um, and there are, there are people that, that, that don't have a choice, that if they are going to worship God, they are going to defy the government. Um, but I, I love what N.T. Wright says uh, about that. Kevin, you mentioned, you know, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God. N.T. Wright basically says that, you know, Jesus says this because the coin had an image of, of Caesar on the coin. So he says the follow-up question should, should have been what belongs to God. Um, and then the answer would have been anything that bears his image belongs to God. Uh, and then of course that, that coincides with Genesis one and 26, let us make man after our image and our likeness. So, so issues that relate to, you know, uh, slowing the pandemic and, and, and paying your taxes and, and not speeding things like that, you know, give those things to Caesar, but issues as it relates to humanity issues that relates to social justice, to dealing with marginalized people, to systemic poverty and systemic racism, those issues submit to God's law. Why? Because we bear his image. And, and, and so I think that, um, you know, I'm not going to sweat the small stuff. I'm not going to allow my, my Western privilege uh, to cloud the, the real issues when it comes to marginalization and to, 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 the, to oppression. Uh, Jesus still came to set the captive free. And whether that's over against uh, culture's pervasive attempts at, at assimilation or whether that's in alignment with what they're saying, it, it bears, Jesus said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, yeah, that's what I would say, I think, to that. Yeah. I concur. I, I will say that uh, this is not oppression. That's right. Come on, <laughs> preach, preach. <laughs> that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Come on. Come on. <laughs> yeah, that was it, Chris. That <laughs> well done. Very <laughs> right, good. Well, let, let me ask, ask a question here. Um, when uh, white people say all lives matter in response to someone saying black lives matter, or when people say that they're colorblind, um, you know, how do uh, non-white people hear their sentiment? And, and Nellie, you referred to that earlier. You said when people say they're colorblind, you feel like you're diminished in some way rather than appreciated. But what about this, this whole thing of Black Lives Matter and the white response, all lives matter? Let, let's talk a little bit about, about that and, and some of the um, implications or, or 
maybe how those kinds of things get heard. How, uh, how should we respond in more gracious ways? Is that a gracious response? Or is that actually just uh, a response that diminishes what somebody else is saying? I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. I think as soon as someone says all lives matter in, in response, um, it's like, a, well, what about me? Right. It's like, well, see me in the midst of this. Uh, and we're so used to in our, you know, Western modern day culture, having things personalized and having things being about us. But this, unless is you is not about you um so it it's really it's like a slap in the face to say that someone who is suffering who is going through something has to then turn and look to you and your problem in the midst of this um so yeah it's it's frustrating it's um like it it really diminishes the the amount of work that's going into making something new for human freedom for human justice and equality um, instead of just like, well, hey, see me too. Uh, I, I haven't been having conversations about this. And something that I've seen online is people saying like, um, well, you know, when Jesus says he goes after the 99, he doesn't go after the 99 because he still has them. He goes after the one. Um, the 99 don't turn around and say, hey, well, what about us? Right. And that's the conversation. Um, and my thought is, would it make a difference if the one that ran away was a black sheep? Would, would that be a different conversation? So that's kind of where my thought is on that. Um, you don't comfort someone at a funeral by telling them that everyone dies. Shots fired. Shots fired. good. No <laughs> bad. Blood everywhere. <laughs> I, I concur. I mean, Jesus Christ, uh, you know, Luke chapter four, he isolated conditions. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, right? He sent me to give sight to the blind. I mean, he itemized those different issues because when that issue is present, that's the issue that matters. And so uh, a whole uh, all lives approach, um, it's really dismissive. And, you know, to Nellie's point, it's, it's selfish. You know, it, those who, who utter those statements, it, it reminds me of an image I saw this week of a white guy was at a protest, driving his car, gets out of his car, has a bow and arrow, and starts shouting, all lives matter, and aims his arrow to shoot. I said, what is this? So all lives matter has become the rhetoric of, like, racism, of just comfortability, privilege, it's, it's all of those things. I mean, a MAGA hat, like it's, it's, it's right on par with all of those images that we see that say, you know what, they don't like us. And so I would caution people uh, against saying that. I mean, it's obvious all lives matter. And if they do, why the issue with saying black lives matter? It, 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 it touches a sore spot in people's hearts and it, it exposes parts of their character that they don't really want to venture into. Um, so I think I'm more unapologetic now about saying uh, Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. uh, just so people can know, hey, when one group is oppressed and one group is demonized, we need to let them know that they do matter. Very easy 
simple thing to do. Uh, not the easiest for those that aren't accustomed to uh, being on that side of the struggle. Yeah, for sure. And um, Nelly, I love what you were saying. That was so good and so so powerful. Um, and I think that you know, as a as a white guy, um, I think that a lot of Caucasians. Uh, I grew up in Kansas, so I grew up in like the middle of the Midwest of the United States. Like, um, and you know, a lot of Caucasians. Um, and I think for for people that are from that kind of background it's hard for them to understand the, um, the struggle and the, the things that our, our African-American and black brothers and sisters have gone through. And um, I think because they don't understand that, then they'll respond with things like, well, all lives matter. And um, they, just, they just have not yet gotten to the point where they've seen what other people have struggled and gone through. And I know even for me, that was, uh, that was a journey, you know, growing up in Kansas, I've lived now in a lot of different major cities and around a lot of different kinds of races. And now in Detroit, it's 80% African-American. And um, it's like, you know, I, I think that you have to just have, you have to have empathy. You have to, to learn. Um, and like, I, I really think that, honestly, I really think God has to do that work in somebody's life. I, I really think God has to open somebody's eyes. Um, even over the last week, I've seen people in our church, their eyes being opened to, to what other people go through. And, you know, I, I want to be a pastor. Um, and I want us to be a church that just proudly says black lives matter right. because, because like, you know, you, you said it, Kellen, like, of course all lives matter. And if all lives matter, then black lives matter. And all lives can't matter until black lives matter. So um, I, I think that it's just, it's a wrong perspective. And um, like, you know, if you were to go, <laughs> I even hate saying this, but if you were to go white lives matter, it's like, well, you, you'd like have no, you have no idea. Like you would never need that to be said. Right. Because you live in, in a world that, that props you up and that gives you all sorts of, of privilege. And like, you have to be able to, to understand, like, um, there's people struggling over here and they, they're like, they're questioning if their lives matter. Like how, how horrible is that? And so we should like, I, I just think we should be affirming that we should be proud about that. And we should stand with our black brothers and sisters. And I know it's, I don't understand the, the differences totally racially what, you know, America versus Canada and, and all those things. But I know here it's a huge, huge issue. John Perkins, civil rights activist and author of One Blood, believes the church is the best place for racial reconciliation. He writes, there's no institution more equipped and capable of bringing transformation to the cause of reconciliation than the church. But we have some hard work to do. Yes, we do, and I believe that. I believe that the church is a great lab for racial reconciliation. We'll be back on our next episode to continue this conversation. I'm Kevin Rogers, and Jesus walks on the streets of Canadian cities. Let's try to keep up with what he's doing. This is Sidewalk Skyline Podcast.